Hey there, friend. How are you? Welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and today's guest is a treat. Her name is Payal Sharma, Dr. Payal Sharma. She is a professor at UNLV. She's a qualitative researcher who studies all kinds of things, including special forces, boxing, power dynamics, stress, and also she studies the models who appear in hip-hop videos. So yeah, this is a wide-ranging conversation. She's a gem. Uh, you can very much tell that she's an academic. She is eloquent. She is organized. Her thoughts are very clearly elucidated and supported by scientific research. It's a good episode. I learned a lot. I really enjoyed the conversation. She is fun. She is fierce. We talk about dogs. We have tangents. And it's a really uplifting and empowering dialogue about how you can personally take responsibility for your own lived experience and radically change your life. So yeah, there's that. You can find her online. There's a few links in the show notes. She's on Instagram at Prof Sharma. And without further ado, enjoy the episode. I'm just going to start recording and okay. we'll see what happens. And we can always delete this later. But I just asked Perfect. you if there's anything that you are especially interested in talking about. You know, there is one sort of set of topics that has been top of mind for me as of late. When I moved to Las Vegas about a year and a half ago, I made a commitment to working out in a way that I hadn't before. And the reason I did that is that I founded a stress management workshop for business school junior faculty that's held annually. And the August of when I moved to Vegas, uh, I moved in July, I was running the workshop and another professor who was this phenomenal speaker talked about how he had committed to working out no matter what after having multiple heart attacks and panic attacks, including on campus. And he had small children and I think that was a big part of the motivation. So anyway, fast forward to a year and a half later and I have regularly been going to my gym and I do different classes, including combat, which is a mix of like Muay Thai and karate and capoeira and boxing and also strength training. And my instructor, Anthony, is former Air Force and also had completed a year of special operations training and what's called combat control. So recently we started watching after classes two different documentaries on special operations training programs. One is called The Selection, and 30 civilians undergo military training under the supervision of a team of instructors who are all retired special operations. And then the second documentary we've been watching is called Rescue Warriors, and it's about the training program for pararescue jumpers in the Air Force. And their uh, motto is that others may live. And basically, through conversations with Anthony and watching these documentaries, I've actually called together a list of lessons that I've been learning about how to be prepared for stress and how to deal with it more effectively in the civilian world. I mean, Payal, you might be the most eloquent and professional podcast guest I've ever heard. That was a very solid <laughs> intro. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, go, go on. This is great. 
So you have been, uh, hang on, we're getting ahead of ourselves though. So for people who have no idea who you are, Payal Sharma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And like, what's your deal? I know that you are an academic, you're a researcher, but if you could just sort of describe yourself a little bit. For sure. I've been a professor for eight years. I have lived on the East and West Coast, and now I live in Las Vegas, and I'm employed at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, in the Lee Business School. And I would say more than anything, my passion as a person, as a scholar, as someone who sits in two different worlds that I think are related, science and data, but also spiritual development, my passion really is to help people understand where they can have power and control in their lives. And their lives can be primarily in the work setting because I study the organizational space. But I think there are lessons that we can take from the work setting that also inform our personal lives. Mm -hmm. And I think my purpose is to help people move from feeling powerless to feeling powerful. And along that journey comes with understanding touch points in our lives that may induce stress and help us be more effectively prepared for that proactively, but also reactively. All right. My body is ready for this lecture about stress and power. Like, that sounds like a great plan. I don't even... Wonderful. Pyle, normally, like, I have lots of questions, and I'm like, you know, I kind of direct the flow, but you just seem like you've got a path, and I'm, I'm happy to follow you at this moment. <laughs> Wonderful. So, and I, I would love your feedback on some of the ideas that I'm thinking through because they're okay. so recent and I feel like you're an expert who can help me in this conversation. Yeah. Let's just, you know, outline a couple papers. We'll pick some targeted journals. We'll, uh, we'll get it going. <laughs> I love it. This is the beginning of a beautiful collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so you are, uh, you're, you're such an interesting mix of like a, I was going to use the word hardcore, but you're like a, a real scientist who does qualitative research and you are blending that with this kind of spiritual mystic side and trying to solve big common problems. I think that's such an accurate description. And I, I thank you for honoring kind of the duality of who I am, because it's also been a journey for me along the way to realize that you can be somebody with multiple selves. And that combination can create your unique purpose and the value that you can add to other people's lives. Mm. Yeah, and, and I, I kind of honor your path because I see a lot of similarities with my own in that I don't know how much you know about me, but I, um, I was in research for many years. I worked as a scientist and then I kind of swung a hard right at the end of my thesis and started doing this long distance love bombs online personal development thing and have kind of integrated both the science with the personal development space to sort of forge my own path. And it sounds like you're doing that in a similar fashion, although it sounds like maybe you have a foot in both, but perhaps, whereas I have maybe I'm standing more strongly on the foot that's in personal development, it sounds like you're perhaps standing a little bit more strongly on the foot that's in science. Yeah. Gosh, what a like powerful combination for us to be speaking together in this space. Yeah, let's change the world, Payal. How do we do it? <laughs> I'm game. 
Um, so where would be a good place to start? Should we start with kind of your background or your research or what's, what feels exciting to you? Yeah, what I can do is I can walk you and your listeners through kind of the basics of how stress is studied in management research and the foundation will be psychological underpinnings. And then I'd love to talk you through two or three lessons that I've extrapolated from the special operations community and see where we land and if, if those lessons resonate with us and, and perhaps others. Yeah, that sounds great. And so just to clarify, you have done research with special operations people? Really, these thoughts are from probably the last several weeks watching these documentaries. They're on the History Channel and also produced by National Geographic. And Anthony, the instructor for the classes that I do, he had trained for a year in the Air Force with combat control, mm. which is a combination of different practices, but it includes air traffic control, which is considered one of the most stressful occupations. And so I think for him and I, we've created this generative space where he brings his experiences as a practitioner from the world of special operations, and I bring my academic mind and my interest in leadership, stress, and power, and we're able to really sense-make watching these documentaries and talk about lessons, I think, that we can all benefit from. My dissertation was on the military. It was about how combat stress as an acute stressor can affect leaders negatively, and that becomes more enhanced when the leader's leaders are not being supportive. And the downstream implications of leaders facing combat stress is that soldiers will be less cohesive in their military units. And of course, that has implications for their performance on the battlefield. Right. And so if I may attempt a rough translation of that, just to make sure that I've wrapped my head around it, you're, you're sort of concluding that if military officers do not have a supportive kind of I don't want to use the word compassionate, but a perhaps supportive and understanding leadership system or structure or model that they can use, then during times of intense, stressful events, then that might fuck everything up. Exactly. And it speaks beautifully to this idea that stress cannot be managed or experienced as an island. You need that system and that context of your leader helping you because then there's going to be these otherwise adverse trickle-down effects that can affect the rest of the system you're embedded in. Mm. And I feel like there's a lot of implications as well uh, for quote-unquote normal businesses, uh, corporations, government, entities, whereby like your boss is kind of a jerk, but then your boss's boss isn't helping. And so then perhaps you take it out on your employees, or maybe you are one of those employees and you're helpless looking up the chain of command like, this is a train wreck. For sure. I think that has to be one of the most frustrating experiences for people because you do feel helpless and you want your boss's boss to step up and intervene. Mm. If there's a power dynamic where you can't really do anything, I mean, it's your boss, right? And mm -hmm. there's risk, whether that could affect your job, your salary, promotion. And so I think senior level leaders and organizations have a responsibility to be catalysts for promoting healthier environments. One of my favorite companies, by the way, that does this right is Johnson & Johnson. So they've started a program a few years ago 
where they invested about $100,000 in, I believe it was seven to eight executives. And they provided these executives with resources that were focused on their mental and physical health. So a nutritionist, for example. And in my research and in my field, we often talk about social learning theory, which says leaders set the tone in an organization. Mm -hmm. So kudos to J&J for really thinking systematically about supporting their senior level leaders, recognizing again the impact on the rest of the organization. Mm. And are you in a similar kind of field with um, like Brene Brown's new book, uh, Dare to Lead, and then Simon Sinek's work as well? Are these? Yeah, loosely. So they're loosely. thoughtful for sure. I actually had the opportunity to host Brene Brown in conjunction with a psychology faculty member at the Wharton School, where I was before UNLV. And I haven't read her new book, but I look up to her in so many ways, and I think she's doing transformational research and practice to help organizations and people, again, in their work lives and personal lives. Her Netflix special, I thought, was just out of this world, and I think everyone should watch it. Okay. I, I actually haven't even seen it yet. That's, that's a little bit embarrassing. So, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to watch that and we're going to talk about stress, dealing with stress and how to become powerful instead of powerless. Yes. All right. So my starting point is to talk through a little bit, kind of the process of stress. And I think this gives us common terms that we can use when we talk about kind of other topics. So the starting point in the science is that we will experience a demand from our environment. This could be a fight with a loved one, it could be traffic or construction into work. That is what is called a stressor. And what happens is when we experience a stressor, this can be episodic, like a one-time, one-off stimulus. It can be ongoing or chronic. What I always like to tell people when I talk about this definition and the starting point of stressors is, it's important to ask yourself, what can you control? And I think that's a theme when it comes to discussing stress. So after you've been exposed to that stressor, the next step in this process, and there's three parts, is the idea of stress itself. Stress is basically your psychological response to these demands from the environment, and you feel like something is at stake. I like to tell people in regular language, you're probably feeling overwhelmed and as though your capacity to deal with that demand is overtaxed. The two examples that I can tell you to break this down further, if I was giving you a survey and asking you, are you experiencing stress? One of the ways I would do this is I would say, in the last month, how often have you been upset because of something that happened unexpectedly? A second question I might ask you in the survey is, in the last month, how often have you felt that you were on top of things? So again, these are the types of statements that are really trying to assess your ability to manage or respond to those demands coming from your environment. Mm -hmm. The last piece of the stress process, stressor, stress, and now it's strain. And I think this is my favorite part. So there are three types of strain, and I've experienced all of them. The first type of strain is what our bodies are trying to tell us. So there are thought leaders like Martha Beck. She's a sociologist and a life coach who's written for Oprah. She's probably my spirit animal. She talks a lot about how the body is the first to know and often is screaming at us when something is going off or wrong in our lives. To link this back to strain, physiological strain 
is the scientific description of what I'm talking about. Physiological strain can occur when you have high blood pressure, headaches, back pain, stomach aches, maybe your neck and shoulders are really sore. The second type of strain is psychological. Examples of this can include if you have anxiety, you feel irritable, you're forgetful, you have low confidence, or you're feeling burnt out. The third type of strain is behavioral, and some examples of strain that are behavioral can include substance abuse, teeth grinding, and compulsive behavior. I actually had a friend who was a faculty member at another school. She used to grind her teeth, so she got a mouth guard, and Jeremy, she ground her way through multiple mouth guards, like hard plastic, I think in part because wow. of the stress of her job. Hmm. Now, the uplifting part of this process, stressor, stress, and strain, is that we have some agency in the impact of stressors on our stress and the impact of stress on strain, and this comes in the form of coping. And there's over 400 ways of coping in the science, so there's a lot of options for people. And I like to say coping isn't good or bad per se, like you need to think about what's going to work for you and what's going to alleviate the sense that you're feeling overwhelmed and help you feel more empowered to deal with those demands that might be coming from your environment. Uh, yeah, this is good. I, I wish yeah. I had some, I need some popcorn pile. This is good stuff. <laughs> so just to, just to like, I feel like, okay, that's the intermission now. So just to summarize that, we all exist in an environment there where there's people in our lives, we have a job, there's cars and traffic and all kinds of stuff. And then sometimes things in that environment create stress for us. And then how we choose to deal with that stress manifests as strain. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. Okay. And so then where, so now, where in that equation are we, um, do we have agency or, or what can we control? Yeah. And coping, I think, is probably one of my favorite topics to talk about because, you know, in the power research, power comes from having access to resources and getting people to do what you want them to do. And so when you think about agency in the stress process, I think it really encourages people to ask themselves, where can I have influence? Where can I have access to resources? How is this going to change this unfolding process? So I want to give you one lesson that I've learned from the special operations community, and I'm curious to see if this would resonate. In the selection, which is this documentary on the History Channel from several years ago, 30 civilians again undergo military training with instructors who are former Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, and the like. And in the first episode, I was literally like, I had no words. One of the instructors says in an interview, the weakest person is the person who thinks they can't be broken. So when I was watching this with Anthony, I reached over and I hit the pause button and I said, wait, that's counterintuitive. Doesn't he mean that the strongest person is the person who thinks they can't be broken? And he said no. And so evidently in the special operations community, there's this philosophy that everyone is going to break at some point. It's not about the broken part. It's about your recovery. Wow. That's some deep stuff. And yeah. uh, one way I've heard Hell Week described is, is like, once you're broken, you know, metaphorically, that's when it starts. Like, 
that's when you find out who you really are. That's when, you know, it really begins, so to speak. And even that quote reminds me of uh, something I was told during my master's degree by one of the professors. And he said, never trust somebody who never trust someone who never admits they don't know. And I think both with that and the quote that you described, there's somewhat of an element of cockiness or fantasy in that, you know, you can be broken. We all have our edge. We all have our breaking point. And those who are somewhat naive, they don't have that self-awareness to recognize that they, they do exist in that way. Does that make yeah, sense? It totally does. And you know, your first comment reminds me of something I recently learned. So my research interests are in power and I've been studying power dynamics in hip hop and rap music videos. And more recently, because I live in the fight capital of the world, over the summer, I started a research project on power dynamics and professional boxing. And last weekend, my body led me to a boxing conditioning class. And it was probably the most mentally clearing physical workout I've ever had. And I was able to hold my own, which was such a sense of accomplishment. And coach who was running the workshop or the the class, he said, boxing begins after six rounds. And Mm. what really counts in boxing is how you perform when you're tired. Mm. Because we're all going to feel tired. I actually got to go to the Deontay Wilder, Louise Ortiz fight here in Vegas at MGM Grand Garden a few weeks ago. It was my first professional fight, heavyweights, and it went six rounds. And Wilder knocked Ortiz out, out of the blue in the seventh round, and the whole arena went wild. And in the first six rounds, Ortiz was hitting Wilder, and it seemed like Ortiz was on the offensive, Wilder was on the defensive, but the game changed in the seventh round. Mm. And I think as a society, we need to honor more that when people are experiencing stress, I don't know anyone who hasn't been broken at some point in their life. That to me is actually not the conversation. The conversation does become what happens after that. Mm. I love that. And, and, and I think mm-hmm. in some way that is a grand unifier for all of us of, you know, we're going to suffer. We're going to be split in half by life. We're going to take a two by four from the universe, from the universe at some stage, like grief will find us. You know what I mean? And I think that we Absolutely. all kind of, yeah, we pretend that that's not the case. And, and so what I think that you're saying is the more that we can discuss that and bring that out into the open, the more that we can heal collectively and, and plan for how to deal with that. Yes. Is that right? And you know, a bigger philosophical question I have for you is, can we train ourselves as a society, for lack of a better word, other than train, because that's where my head space is right now, to anticipate hard stuff that's going to happen? So the other day I was speaking to a friend of mine, Eli Williams, who works in the Office of Service Learning and Leadership for UNLV. And I said to Eli, when you wake up in the morning, what do you say to yourself? Do you say today's going to be a great day? You know, when I've been going through hard times, I might say, I hope today doesn't kill me. (laughs) Mm. But then I thought, and I said this to Eli, I said, what if we could wake up in the morning and go through our days and lean into the moments that fill us and, and are positive and energize us and, and appreciate and honor those moments. And then for the moments that suck and are really hard, maybe we can say, that might be a part of our day, but we're going to figure it out. We're going to make our way through that 
And, and maybe that's how we approach life instead of expecting a day to only be great or only to be shitty. Mm. I love that. Yeah, because it's not just a, a binary decision, right? There's an entire spectrum that we can choose from. And what it sounds like is we need to give our culture like a life coach, you know, because we, yeah, I think we can, <laughs> you know, I think we can train our society. And I think that the way that we do that is by individually doing the work by raising kids who know how to do the work and then gradually sort of turn the ship around in a way. And that's why I'm such a big advocate of compassion and kindness simply because I feel like that is a a Trojan horse of sorts for us to collectively care about each other and try to unite each other. Yes. I've had students over the years teach me, which I think is actually one of the greatest gifts of being a professor. You're not always the expert and you don't know everything. And I remember when I used to live in Philly, one of my most wonderful students from Rutgers, Kelly, came down to visit from New Jersey and we were on public transportation. And Philly is where I think of my home is. I lived there for three years. I grew up in San Diego, but Philly is where my heart is. And I remember on public transportation, we were seeing some pretty difficult interactions between parents and their children. And when we got off the train, Kelly looked at me and said, Professor Sharma, I try to tell myself when people are having really hard moments that maybe that's the worst moment in their day. Like I I Mm. try to express compassion in my own mind to, to help me understand, you know, what I'm observing. And of course there are situations that can cross the line and we can come up with a list of those and have examples, but her compassion stayed with me. I mean, this was years ago to Mm. look at people and understand the way that they're expressing what they're feeling may not be ideal, but it's probably coming from a hard place. I'll I'll give you a quick kind of um, research kind of data point as well. So I've looked at some research that's in the kind of practitioner space, like for regular people. And one of the lessons that a professor named Gottman has suggested is that anger is a secondary emotion and that it's actually the tip of the iceberg. And so with this metaphor, the idea is that anger actually masks and conceals other emotions like fear and humiliation and sadness. Mm. And so when we feel angry, maybe because we're late to work and there's traffic, right? There's that stressor. I think it's important to do the work and figure out what we're actually feeling because what we're feeling is manifesting as anger, but that's not actually what we're feeling when you go to a deeper level. Yes. All the yes to that point. And um, a quick tangent, but John Gottman was on a podcast called Experts on Experts with Dak Shepard, and it's really good. And so if you like him or if you're listening and you want, and he basically is like one of the OGs of relationship research, right? Um, yeah. That, that's a, that's a really good one. Yeah. And he was on Mark Groves podcast as well. I think Mark had Julie on too. Um, but anyway, the, the way I've heard that succinctly described, and I don't remember who said it, but it was just anger is sad's bodyguard. Oh, it's just that. It's like anytime you're, you, I see somebody angry, I am trying to train myself to think, gosh, they're, they must be so sad. Or like to yeah. be, I try to imagine being that angry at something and how, how much energy I must be feeling internally, right? And like another game that I play to your point is if I'm really, if I'm in traffic or I'm driving around somewhere and somebody cuts me off, 
rather than saying, you know, oh, you're such an asshole and get really, getting really upset, what I have been trying to do is to create like the wildest fictional narrative as to why they cut me off, right? So I might wow. be like, oh, like they probably just ran a, robbed a bank and they're escaping from the cops or gosh, they're probably, they have to go visit their cat in the cat hospital because it had diarrhea all over the car or I don't know, just <laughs> You know, I just yeah. make, make up some wild stuff. And then, if yeah. I may, just another point that I've heard, and I think it was Sam Harris in one of his books, but he had this, oh yeah, it was this book called Free Will. And he had this line about compassion or connection, whereby he was saying, if you were raised in that person's family, and if you have lived all of the same experience that they have, to this stage, you would be them. You would literally be doing exactly what they're doing because wow. you, you would have had the same birth, the same family dynamics, the same life experience that would have taught you to behave in a certain way in certain circumstances. And that one has kind of messed my head up a little bit, I think as a, as a unique philosophical experiment. Yes. Yeah. Gosh, that's powerful. And you know, we don't choose our families when we're children. <laughs> we don't have agency. That's right. And so I think it's important to remind ourselves where our agency has begun. And it's often as adults. And yeah. that's where you can, yeah, think through some of these kind of bigger, broader issues. When I give stress talks, some of the feedback I get is that stress is something to like, consider and to manage day to day. And I say, absolutely. It's kind of like brushing your teeth, right? Like it's a part of your day to day <laughs> life. And I, I envy people who don't have to deal with stress, but I, I think most yeah. of us don't live in that kind of world. Yeah. So perhaps that's a great lead in. So we can end the intermission with all the tangents and back into the second act, which was coping, right? So we did yes. stressors, stress and strain. And now Okay, what do you do with it? How do you deal with stress day to day? Yes. So there's a story, it's short, that I want to read to you that I heard years ago, and this has stayed with me and illustrates, I think, one way to cope effectively. The story is called The Fight of Two Wolves Within You. And the way the story, again, again, it's quite brief, begins is an old Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside of me, he says to the boy. It is a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One wolf is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The grandfather continues, the other wolf is good. He is joy, peace, love, and hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, Empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. My son, he says, the same fight is going on inside of you and every other person as well. The grandson pauses for a moment to think and then asks his grandfather, which wolf will win the fight? The grandfather simply smiles and replies, the one that you feed. Mm. That's deep. Yeah. So one way I always like to connect this story back to, you know, science and research on coping and then to think more practically what people can do day to day is about the idea of how we frame our story and our lives. 
And there is a spiritual thought leader slash therapist who was trained in Carl Jung's work. Her name's Alyssa Romeo, like Romeo and Juliet. And I found this activity on her website where she guides people through this exercise to write their own stories. Mm. And the first step of this two-part process is to write your story as a victim. And so she wants people to think about what it means to feel powerless as though events are happening to you. You have no choice and you're simply reacting. And I've done this in workshops at Wharton. I've done this with my students at UNLV. And inevitably what happens is students partner up and they take turns telling each other their victim story and the whole morale in the room drops. People's mm. shoulders are slumping. <laughs> you can see the expressions on their faces are fairly desolate. So then we take a pause and we take a breath and then we repeat the exercise and everybody retells their story as though they're the hero of their lives. And so Alyssa breaks this down in her uh, activity on her website that this is where you have control and power, that you can learn from experiences that they're actually part of how you develop and grow. And of course, the entire mood in the room changes. And students have reported to me in our debrief quite often that one, they notice how telling their story as a victim changes their bodies. So they slump, their stomach starts to ache, they start to feel tension in their necks and their back. And then they report back to me that their partners start mirroring them physically and their partners start supporting and feeding the victim's story, which is crazy when it comes to like, thinking about emotional contagion, for example, and how people reflect back what we put out there. But of course, when people are telling their hero stories, you know, everyone's faces are lighting up, they're gesturing more, they're laughing, their partners are leaning in eagerly to hear what comes next in the story. And people often bond, I think, in more healthier and productive ways over their hero stories. Mm. Is there any way you could give an example of what a victim's story versus a hero interpretation looks like? For sure. So I would say probably one of the most powerful learning opportunities for me as a professor was one of, one of my students came up to me at the end and the student said to me, Professor Sharma, my father died. And he and I had a close relationship and this basically was like the most devastating event I've ever experienced and I'm still going through the grief of it. So for him, the victim story was that he had lost this parental figure and you know, somebody who was incredibly important to him and was a part of his support system and what could he do and how could he not be enveloped in this grief and how could he possibly move forward? And so he shared with me that it was tough to think about the hero version of that. And, you know, he was saying, you know, what can I learn from this? And so I had to take a beat and think about this. And mm -hmm. I looked at him and I said, I want to be honest with you. There's there's no silver lining, right, that I can say about your father's death. Like, like, like how are we going to turn that around? And I said, you're going through pain because of this loss that was so profound for you. And then I thought about it some more, and I said to him, I said, we're in a leadership class. And I said, do you lead others right now? And he goes, yeah, I manage a team of so-and-so employees. And I said, well, let's think about it this way. What if your employees come to you one day and says, my father died? or someone important in that person's life. I said, how will you respond? And so the student thought about it and said, I'm gonna be understanding and I'm gonna have compassion for how that must feel. And I said, mm. you're going to be uniquely gifted to understand that person's pain 
And you're probably going to be able to help that person as a leader in a way that maybe not every leader knows how to do. Mm. I love that reframe. Mm-hmm. It's so true though. It's, it's so powerful. And, and perhaps that's part of the wisdom that comes with aging is that life has just found you more often than when you're younger. You know what I mean? Like perhaps you've gone to a funeral or you've dealt with loss or terminal illness, or you've had accidents and it is, it's the grand unifier. When somebody then also experiences that you can reflect on your own pain and your own loss and your own tragedy. And it kind of carves you open to feel a more intense compassion and connection for that person. Yeah. And it's interesting because Brene Brown has a video that the director of communications for the business school, Megan, sent me a few weeks ago. I used it in my leadership class. And the video breaks down in Brene's voice the difference between empathy and sympathy. And she talks about how empathy is really sitting with the person where they're at. Mm. And sympathy is, oh, that's too bad. And she said that um, sympathy (laughs) begins with like, expressions that are not always appropriate but basically the idea is that it's not so bad or at least such and such didn't happen so in the video she talks about you know someone is expressing my son was kicked out of school and the other person responds well at least your daughter's a straight a student (laughs) or somebody says i had a miscarriage and the other person says well at least you can still have babies i mean Mm. that is not being empathetic and sitting with a person you know the flip side of this and i think about this because of my research on leaders is I also think there's a tax to being empathetic. And I think people need to realize what emotional capacity they have to support other people. And of course we should be compassionate and help others. Um, I just like to qualify some of this with my own thinking about stress to be mindful when it's taking of you in a way where you're not able to give. Yeah, and I think that sort of goes in the direction of having healthier boundaries with your energetic experience and how you spend your time right? For sure. I wrote this morning um, this, this idea that your sensitivity is a scapegoat and your empathy is a scapegoat. Because I often talk to people and they say, oh, you don't understand. I'm just an, emp- I'm an empath. I'm just an empathetic person. I can't help but feel distraught, destroyed, carved open by the world. And like on some level, I get that. And on another level, I think that we can make choices and decisions to minimize our exposure or our experience with people or situations that drain us and destroy us. What, what are your thoughts on that? Because maybe I'm wrong. I, yeah, I agree entirely. And this resonates with me as a person and a researcher. So my hip hop project looks at the career experiences of video models, people women who model in hip-hop and rap music videos. Wait, so hang on, hang on. Payal, Payal, just to clarify to someone listening, you are a real scientist at a real university who studies the models in hip-hop videos. (laughs) And I grew up listening to Tupac and Notorious B.I.G. Yeah. I think I know more about hip hop than most professors. (laughs) Okay, I I just wanted to clarify, like, this is not a spoof. Uh, and like, and your, um, your suite of research topics is quite varied. Hey, you're studying special forces, documentaries, stress, leadership, power, boxing, and hip hop models. (laughs) 
That's Dig right. It. Okay, so sorry, sorry to interrupt, but okay, so what have you found studying hip hop models? Yeah. So the study design or the way we approach the data collection is that I was interviewing video models primarily by phone. And I remember when I started the project, I had to learn to listen to their stories about power and mistreatment in the workplace Mm. and find ways to protect the drainage emotionally that I would feel. So to give you a sense, Video models are self-identified as the most powerless actors in the hierarchy or ladder of power on a hip-hop or rap music video set. The director is the person that has the most power. I think your average person might presume the rapper might have the most power, but it's actually the director that's calling the shots. Video models often do their work for free, even when it's big-name artists, and they're hoping to leverage their currency, which is time in front of the camera to find other jobs and maybe move on to other careers. Some of them do this work to pay the bills. Uh, There are some video models who do this work to pay for college. So there's a variety of motives for why they do it, but they don't have access to a lot of resources, including financial. And I remember when I started interviewing the video models, I would ask them about their experiences on set and the interview eventually would turn to the topic of workplace mistreatment. And examples of that include being abused by your boss, being bullied, being treated incivilly, being undermined and sexually harassed by your coworkers as well as those who are more powerful than you. And some of the stories that surface, I mean, they really, again, kind of set me back. One of the stories was about how video models can find work abroad, but that's usually a gateway to sex trafficking. Uh, I also had video models who shared stories about being sexually assaulted and being survivors of sexual abuse growing up. And mm. sexual assault is also part of the risk of their jobs. And so I had done, I remember, three interviews in one day. And I started to feel the response in my body. Like I started to feel muscles tightening above my heart. And I thought there was something in my heart that was happening, but it was just muscle-based response according to the, like, doctor I talked to. It was tension in my body. And I remember walking the streets of Philly thinking the world sucks. And there are a lot of people out there that are not doing nice things to other people. So I talked to my co-author, Christy Rogers, who's a professor at Marquette University. And Christy's mission as a researcher is to use qualitative research methods to help bring attention to voices that we don't always hear. And so the way she helped me reframe this and the boundary that I created is that my job is to do what I do well, and that's research. And my job within that description involves presenting this data with integrity, honoring the stories that are being told, and making sure that these voices, again, which are marginalized, are heard within the academic community. And so I feel like I had to really understand and learn that these stories are going to continue but I have a platform and I have a skill set that can move those stories in a direction where maybe, you know, people can become more educated and more informed. And, and that gives me a sense of agency and control rather than just solely feeling emotionally depleted. And so how do you deal with the actual symptoms of the emotional response internally then? Because I can yeah. see it's one thing to be like, oh, yeah, I'm making a difference and this is how it goes. But then you also have the the body feeling very strongly that something's going on. Yeah. 
And, you know, it's interesting because a day and a half later, after this day of three interviews, I went to Atlanta and I was able to go on set for video. And because of research ethics, we can't reveal like the names of the artists or more details. But I felt like I was carrying those physical symptoms into my trip to Atlanta and a lot of like crazy things happened there. You know, I, I think I had to push the pause button. I had to stop collecting data, first of all, to give my body a break from the responses that it was inducing. I also feel that I, I live my life these days with my body leading. So when I went to this boxing conditioning class, it was probably the best way to release anger and aggression and frustration and to take it out in a way that was healthy. So I feel like I have to put time into my day where I'm giving my body the opportunity to simply exhale because your body physically cannot carry these symptoms in a sustainable manner. It's going to implode. And I think all of us have probably experienced that at some point. Your body has, you know, a limited capacity and you have to listen when it's trying to teach you that you have to make a different set of decisions in that moment, in that day, in the coming days and weeks. I also tell people following Martha Beck, the life coach I mentioned, her philosophy is pay attention to how you feel in your body when you walk away from a certain person. And if your body is telling you something is off, then listen to that and see if you can find ways to spend less time with that person. Mm. Yeah, the body knows. Actually, Payal, have you read this book by Gabor Mate, The The Body Says No? Oh, no, but I love that title. When when The Body Says No? Something like that. It's really interesting, and it touches on exactly what you just mentioned, and I would encourage you to check it out. Yeah. So Gabor Gabor Mate is like a psychologist that has worked for a long time in Vancouver with uh, trauma and um, trying to unpack that and understand it. And the, the book itself is kind of a, it's kind of like a, a synthesis of research and ideas that are a little bit sort of tip of the spear, so to speak. Um, I think it's like a decade old now, but the general idea is that chronic stress, repressed trauma, repressed emotion, repressed feelings are creating chronic stress in the body that then leads to a variety of autoimmune disorders, diseases, et cetera. And um, I just think you'll, you'll dig it. That just sounds so right up my alley. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because I was thinking our, our podcast, you know, is happening before the holidays and it's such a stressful time for people. Mm-hmm. You know, people go home, they see their parents, for example, and I think a lot of people might identify with the fact that their parents still treat them as though they're the children that lived in that home. But of course, people leave the home and and develop lives and careers and have their own families. And so I, over the years, I mean, I've had friends talk about strategies they've used. So very tactically speaking, they'll go into a bathroom and just breathe for a few moments (laughs) because it's the one place and space where nobody's asking of them and they can just give their body a chance to exhale before kind of going back into the storm. Mm, I love that. So that's one kind of effective coping strategy then, breathing. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned exercise, moving your body, punching and kicking things in a healthy, safe space. Are there other sort of tools in the toolbox of coping with stress that you suggest? Yes. 
So this is a little bit of a kind of tangent off of the body conversation, but something that I have done in my own life is as follows. Let's say I have a really crappy day at work. What I try to do is I try to go be around people that have nothing to do with my work, but can curate another self, right? Like another part to my identity, because it gives me a break from whatever is taxing, you know, my mind, my body and spirit. And so I think it's important when people think about their support systems or their village, right? Or their tribe, these are words that are quite hot and sexy. I think it's important to surround yourself with people who fill you in different ways and speak to different parts of who you are. So if we're all puzzles and different pieces comprise our identities, try to curate relationships with people that you can go to almost in a way where you have your identity compartmentalized, but in a way that's healthy again and serves you if one part of your life isn't going so great. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful point. And we seem to kind of overestimate how significant certain things are. And we kind of lose sight of the fact that we have so many other things that are going right for us. Like, mm-hmm. like you can get in a fight with your boyfriend, but also, you know, you're kicking ass at work and you're super fit and you have a family that loves you and you live in a place that you adore and you have all these things and maybe you own a dog or a rabbit or something. And um, <laughs> like, but it's that idea that like one drop of poison can ruin the well, right? And so I hear sure. what you're suggesting is somewhat of a compartmentalization of life. Is that right? I think so. And maybe it harkens back to this idea of boundaries. I mean, I have friends here in Las Vegas and I credit the people of LV because in the short time I've lived here, I feel like I have found sub communities within this larger entity of Las Vegas. So my dogs and I have a tradition every Thursday morning, we go visit our friend Tegan and we met Tegan because she works next to the coffee shop that I would go to once a week with the dogs and Hagen and I talk about the dogs and she has dogs of her own and people are coming to work in the buildings around us. So I feel like we're brightening their days because they get to say hello to my dogs. And <laughs> Hagen's one of the people that I will go to if I need to talk about a situation that has happened with the dog's health. My older guy, Chai, like T, he's 12 years old and he had his annual visit recently and he's in physically excellent health, but he might have very early stage doggy dementia. And Tegan was one of the people that I wanted to talk to about that. Mm. And maybe I won't talk about that with people in other, you know, parts of the pie of my life, but that's okay because that's the bond I share with her. And she's shared stories with me about her dogs and our bond is rich and strong and deep and meaningful. And I think that's what helps you through the tough times. Mm -hmm. And you can't drink from the same well, right? It's going to dry up. You can't go to your partner every time something goes wrong with your work, your friends, your family, your health, your pets. Again, curating, I think this diverse portfolio of who's in your support system I think will only make you feel more supported when those different punches arise. I just love that. So powerful. And and sort of at the heart of it is you identifying and having an awareness of what you need to help you through tough times. Right. And so, Oh yeah. I, I could see somebody saying like, Oh, uh, 
I feel weird talking to somebody about my dog, or I feel weird that I care this much about my dog, or, you know, insert topic or subject matter here. And so there's this element of being aware of it and identifying it, and then also acting upon that in a healthy way of being like, fuck it, like I need to go and talk to Tegan every week about my dog, and that helps me reduce my stress, and that's just what I need, and I'm going to own that, and I'm going to do that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you're reminding me of Brene Brown and this idea that not everyone, first of all, has earned the right to hear your story. Mm -hmm. Secondly, and again, I go back to research because I'm a nerd, the trust research in my field says that trust builds slowly. So if you have a listener who's an oversharer, fight that urge. Because what I recommend to people is trust builds when you share a little something. And then you see if the other person shares a little something, is it commensurate with what you've shared? I have a funny tangent, by the way. If I get a long email from someone, I always, Jeremy, try to think about, okay, I, maybe I don't have the time to write back an email equivalent in length, but I want what I say back to be equivalent in honoring the content of what that person has said. I want them to feel heard. And I don't need five paragraphs to communicate that. You learn over time, right, how to make emails succinct but still meaningful. Mm. And so I think with this trust idea, you slowly build that relationship and you cultivate that bond. I didn't start telling Tegan the ins and outs of the dog's health on day one, right? That took weeks mm. to build. But that also is how you build sustainable relationships. You know, if you, if you tell someone your deepest, darkest pain on the first day, maybe they'll reciprocate and maybe you'll feel connected and you won't have a vulnerability hangover the next day, as Brene says. But I also think there's something so emergent and powerful when your relationship builds over time because your investment and your trust has also developed along that way. Yeah, it, it's a courtship, right? There's some kind of a dance yes. whereby somebody's got to go first and some, then somebody has to lead. And I often have heard it described as if you want to tell if you can trust somebody, then the only way to do that is to trust them, right? And they will oh. show you. They'll tell you. They will demonstrate through their actions and their responses if they are trustworthy. And as you suggested, it's one thing to just cannonball in and say, hey, here's my heart, here's my soul, here's my deepest, darkest secrets. And it's quite another to be like, here's an appetizer of who I am. How do you, yes. how do you receive that? You know, is there respect there? Is there compassion and empathy there? Okay, now here's the main course. Like, here's some other things. And I just, I love that approach of, of taking it slowly and, and building it through time. Yes. You're reminding me of this book I recently read on grief. I think it's called The Grief Club by Melody Beatty, who's one of my favorite authors. She's also written a book on codependency. And in The Grief Club, she talks about the idea that when you experience loss, you become one, an expert on grief, maybe an unchosen, unsolicited expert, but you become one. Mm. And you also will discover over the course of your experiences, who else is in that club with you. And so to create a metaphor for your listeners, Tegan and I are in the dog owners club and yeah. I can go to her, right? Because she's a member and she gets it. And I'm a part of a lot of different clubs in my life. And each of those members, again, feeds me. And my expectations can also be moderated because I'm not going to only one person expecting they'll understand what it's like to be a member in the five or six or 10 or 12 clubs that constitute my identity. Mm. And so what advice 
or suggestions would you offer to somebody listening that doesn't necessarily have five or 10 or 12 very powerful connections in their life? Like where do you start if you don't have those people in your space? Yeah, it's such a great question. And again, for me, deeply resonates because I moved to Las Vegas knowing nobody. I knew one of my colleagues through a common co-author, but I moved here not knowing anyone. And I mean, I'm always real and honest about life and it was incredibly hard. My first six to eight months here were probably some of the loneliest months I've had. I missed Philly dearly. I miss the lifestyle of being in the downtown area. I miss the neighborhood. I miss the sense that people in Philly were my family, not by blood, but looked out for me because we walked everywhere and took public transportation. Two of my best friends are back in Philly. So I, I struggled a lot. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, people will say when you move to a new city, it takes a year. I've also been told, you know, it's harder to make friends as an adult. It's not like we're in kindergarten or high school or for those who have gone to college, right? There's these like ready-made communities of people where you can find your best friend. Mm. And so I, I want to acknowledge that it's hard and it sucks and it leaves you a lot of time to think and ruminate and to just facilitate probably the script in your head that you're alone. Mm. What I ended up doing is I tried to put myself out there for lack of a better expression. So I started going to, you know, working out and that in of itself wasn't like a complete panacea in meeting people. I actually threw myself practically at Pam, one of my closest friends now from my workout classes in the locker room. It turned out she also taught at UNLV. And so I like attached myself to her and had a 45 minute conversation with her about working out, I think in February of this year, because she was one of the first people that I felt like I could talk to and connected to. So I, I think you have to dip your toe into the water. Sitting at home alone, watching television is not going to make this better. You know, there's this expression, move your body to get out of your mind that I've been told by friends. So you have to get up and go do something. And depending on your capacity to move, You can take a walk in your neighborhood. Maybe that's enough for your day. Maybe you run into a neighbor and that is a conversation that fills you. I also tried going to different workshops. So following your interests, I went to a self-love workshop at one of my gyms, which was run by a woman named Amanda Silvis, who I adore. Her and her husband, James, are people who you know um, and have become some of my favorite people in the Las Vegas community They've come to my leadership classes as guest speakers, and they, of course, have introduced me to other people. None of that would have happened if I didn't go to that workshop. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest lessons I have to tell you is that I have learned to be comfortable doing activities alone. Like, I didn't go to the gym with friends. I didn't go to Amanda's self-love workshop knowing anybody. And thankfully, I met a woman there, Sarah Garcia, who I still keep in touch with on Instagram. And my conversation with Sarah that day was so profound because she validated how lonely she felt when she moved to Las Vegas. So to use the metaphor, Sarah was in my club. And the only reason I met her is because I went to this workshop and I sat there and Jeremy, I wrote in my journal because we had to bring a journal. I am sitting here alone waiting for the workshop to start. I'll never forget that. And then a few minutes later, I was partnered up with Sarah and it changed the whole tone of the experience for me. The other thing I recommend, and this might sound silly, but I believe in it and I've done it. Think back to when you were a child, 
what were your favorite things to do? So for me, some of my favorite activities were reading, and that might be more solitary, but maybe that could lead to a book club that I join. I also love animals, and so I have dogs, and I walk them, and I've met wonderful people like Tegan. I also encourage people to think, you know, what were your hobbies? So in Philly, I actually took a knitting class. <laughs> my mom taught me how to knit when I was a child, and knitting scientifically is a massage for your brain. And I started knitting baby hats, and friends and colleagues in Philly were having babies, and I was like the coolest person ever because I would knit these like multicolored baby hats that I learned in this class or I was led to because when I was younger, that filled my spirit. Like keep it basic, break it down to what energizes you and then see if you can find low hanging fruit to explore. And maybe through that, you'll meet members of the club that you're a part of. I think you said that so well and so eloquently, and I totally agree with all of it. And I think just to summarize it, it's do some stuff, like go and do some stuff. And it it applies to anything in life. If you are not wholeheartedly content with the way things are going for you, then you've got to change it up. And that process is potentially going to feel really uncomfortable because you're going to have to be a beginner again. You're going to have to try something new. You're going to face the unknown and uncertain future of what happens when you actually do that thing. And yeah, as, as you say, like that kind of sucks and it's kind of hard. But on the other side of those actions is a better life. On the other side of those things is a life that you're really ecstatic about and a life that you're really proud of. And I think, yeah. you know, I wish there was like a quick hack around it, but it actually takes some personal responsibility and a little bit of courage and a little bit of determination to go and change your life. You know, it's so funny. So in these special operations documentaries, there's a philosophy the military uses with training. It's crawl, walk, run. And I've really thought about this. And I've actually thought about getting a tattoo. I have a couple of tattoos that says crawl. And then (laughs) one day, if I feel like I'm walking, I'm going to add walk. And then one day, if I feel like I'm running, I'll add run. And this is (laughs) building blocks, right? And so I thought about it and I was like, on my worst days, I'm going to crawl. But let's say I don't even feel like crawling. Like what would be the predecessor? And I said, being stationary. And then I thought to myself, if I'm stationary, what are the choices? Like, I don't want to sit on my couch and ruminate and fall into this feedback loop of confirming and looking for evidence that I'm alone. And so there are days where I will crawl. And I think when you're trying to figure out how to build your support system, recognize that that might be just about what you can do. Maybe you look up, you know, a sports league because you used to love to play soccer and that's enough for that day. You looked it up online go have some ice cream. The other thing I really want to acknowledge is you're going to have strikeouts, right? Like these tactics I'm using were not uniformly quote unquote successful. I didn't walk away from every interaction I had with anyone I attempted to build a relationship with here in Vegas and think I have developed this meaningful bond and this person is going to become important to me. Recognize again that there's layers to relationships. You might form a connection with someone that in the beginning seems fairly surface level or meaningless, but maybe over time it transforms again as you get to know each other. You have to show up and you have to keep going. If you stop, 
and you don't keep trying or you you take that strikeout that happens the first time as evidence that you're never going to find a support system, well, guess what? You're right. You never are <laughs> because you're just creating the self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's so hard to break out of that. But crawl. Crawl if you need to. And, and some days you'll be stationary and you can eat popcorn and gummy bears on the couch. But the next day, get up and crawl. Mm. And eventually you will walk and eventually you will run. I love that a lot. Yeah. Baby steps, right? Baby steps is still progress. Yes. And give yourself credit when you do those baby steps because mm-hmm. baby steps add up. And I don't know anyone who went from zero to hero. Puff Daddy has, you know, this like, you know, incredibly successful organization with Bad Boy and he's, you know, a mogul. But within the hip hop community, people talk about the fact that he used to be a hustler. Like his early jobs were picking up people from their homes and giving them rides to the airport. If he had a 7.30 a.m. pickup, he showed up at 7 a.m. Russell Simmons writes about this in a book called Super Rich that a student gave me. And again, you know, I feel like as a society, so this is my other like kind of pet peeve, if you will, we often talk about success and we glorify that. And people who are successful have likely earned it and they've worked hard and we should honor that. But we need to think about pathways to get there and that it wasn't, again, this single shot or linear process that blew them up. And I think as a society, I wish sometimes we talked more about the hardships along the way. Mm. What was uh, what was your worst job you've ever had? Oh, my goodness. Um, I've had a couple of bumps in my career. And I remember, gosh, what I will say, because of certain political reasons, since I'm still in my career, the jobs that I found the worst were the ones where I felt unseen, unheard, and unvalued. Mm-hmm. Just used. And I think, yeah, when you go through that, it breaks you. I think the same thing would apply to relationships. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like we all... We, we want to be acknowledged. We want to feel part of the team. We want to feel worthy. We want to receive love and praise. We want to make people proud. We want to have self-respect. We need a reason to get out of bed in the morning, right? And I think that a lot of that stuff starts within, right? And you talked about trying to get out of bed in the morning and immediately frame your life and frame your day in such a way that you give yourself the greatest chance to live the life that you want to live. Yes. And recognize that there are going to be twists and turns, but life isn't only hopefully twists and turns. Hopefully there's some sunshine and puppies and ice cream sundaes along the way. I tell myself that all the time. I'm like, I have hard days, but my hard days are not only deeply painful, right? Like there's joy and fulfillment and laughter and dance and dogs and you know, boxing and so much more. I I, Mm. I think it's important to recognize the richness of life and to realize that there are opportunities, no matter what the experiences we have to learn and and to grow. You know, I also want to mention to you that in the video model data, Christy and I have seen four themes emerge, which constitute powerlessness. Your listeners may find this interesting in light of some of the themes we've been discussing So the first theme that constitutes powerlessness is feeling isolated. 
A second theme is the illusion of instability in your work. That could also extrapolate to people's lives or relationships. The third theme is the perception of resource scarcity, that there's a fixed pie and we're never gonna get what's due to us or that there's always competition and other people will win. And then the last component is a code of silence that people can't or won't use their voices. And even if they did, they wouldn't be heard. Mm. And so those, just to sum those up again at the end, isolation, code of silence, what were the other two? Indecision? Um, instability in your work or relationships, and then the perception that there's resource scarcity. Mm. And so the idea is that once you can identify these four elements in your own experience, you could start to live in a different way or shift those subconscious beliefs. And become powerful. Exactly. Mm. What would you say, uh, and I'm conscious of your, of your time as well, um, but sort of wrapping this all up, what would be kind of the one thing that you recommend to somebody listening who really wants to reclaim their own power? Yeah. You know, for me, it really comes down to agency and control. And there are many studies and theories in my field that thematically speak to this. And I think it's important to recognize where you have space in your life to make choices. And one area where you don't have agency often is controlling other people. And so I would encourage your listeners to wake up tomorrow morning and to come up with one choice that they can make that day and think baby steps. Mm. Is it getting out of bed? Is it putting on your favorite sweater or, you know, jewelry or shoes or hat? And maybe that's enough. And you've made a choice to soothe yourself, to support yourself, and to have a positive moment that you can lean into. And you have choices in your relationships. I know it doesn't always feel that way if you work for a crappy boss or you feel dependent on your significant other for emotional, financial, or other reasons. You might have children together. But you're your best guide, and you know yourself and your life better than anyone else. So I can't tell your listeners where their choices lie, but I can tell them the choices are always there. And they might feel maybe not tremendously transformative, you know, tomorrow morning when they wake up, but it's a starting point. Mm. And crawl, because that starting point is going to get you to walk and it's going to get you to run. I love that. Just start crawling. Yeah. And even that... Uh... Even if you don't know exactly where you're crawling to, you can always change direction on the way, right? Because I hear that oftentimes, like, oh, I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to start. I don't know this. I don't know that. It's like, great. Do it anyway. Just start. Start crawling. Yeah. You know, I can't help thinking about the word expectation. And to me, I think it's important for your listeners to moderate their expectations. Like to the example you've just given, If you're going in a direction, you know, maybe the expectation is that the direction will change and you don't have to feel so tightly wedded to the destination you originally had in mind because maybe something better is actually waiting for you because of that turn that you made. Mm. Yeah. And you're not going to know that right away. It may take time. Yeah. And even um, like embracing it or pursuing it. So 
for example, I, I kind of use fear as a breadcrumb towards courage. So if I'm really scared of something or if I really don't want to do something, then to me, I'm like, oh shit, well, that's a breadcrumb that I need to follow to be braver. And in the same thing with failure of if I chase failure in a, in a sort of, you know, metaphorical way, but if I recognize that failure is just a lesson to learn, if it's, it's feedback, it's data to collect and um, inform my next effort, then the failure isn't so much of a emotional sting inside. It just becomes like part of the process. Um, and so I think that we can each individually or collectively as a society start to reframe some of these quote unquote like setbacks and actually view them as stepping stones. And as cliche as that sounds, I think it is also a very powerful truth. Oh, yeah. You know, you're reminding me of a lesson I've learned in my own life, which is how much weight do I assign to events in my day? And psychology research would say the bad outweighs the good, right? I could have a great day and three bad things happen. And if I came home to you and we had dinner, I would say, Jeremy, I had these three crappy things happen. Mm -hmm. But then that would be ignoring the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think we can, you know, not dismiss, obviously, when something goes bad. But I tell my students, that can be a moment in your day or it can be your day. You have that Mm -hmm. choice. Yeah, it goes back to that you know, which wolf are you going to feed? Right? Yeah. And I have to tell you, I mean, I, I have done classes for working out here, for example, that were not in my comfort zone, but being outside of my comfort zone has become my new normal. I did a pole dancing class a few weeks ago. Yeah, you did. By the way, big, yeah, big ups to the women who do this professionally because it is hard and it hurts when it's skin on pole. But I, I did that because I was curious. I wanted to move my body in a different way. You know, the strip club and the hip hop industry, you know, share overlap. And the strip club has been empirically shown in research to be the cultural muse for hip hop and rap music videos. And Mm. I learned from that. And now I'm trying other classes like the boxing conditioning one, because I want to get a sense again of what my informants and my research experience. Now I'm going to battle rope slash TRX alone and I'll probably try a cycle class to round out the year and actually this fun kind of exploration I've been doing is with the intent that I want to bring one of those classes into the new year with me and add it to my workout regimen I love it and when you said cycle class do you mean spin class yep oh I I have a love hate relationship with spin class oh yeah they're miserable in my experience And you know what? On the other side of that misery is pride and strength and discipline. So I wish you you luck with spin class. (laughs) I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. And you know the way you could have come to these insights is because you did the damn class, right? (laughs) Precisely. Yeah, I just try to collect more uncomfortable moments. Because, you know, it translates to anything. It translates to your relationship. It translates to business. It translates to your to how you're parenting. It's, it's everything. It's all connected. And the more that you can put yourself in a place that feels uncomfortable so that you can learn about the experience, but also so that you can learn about yourself in the process, then the better prepared you are for life in general. Yeah. 
Mm. So I'll leave you with one last expression from the special operations community. And again, I learned this from the selection, the documentary on the History Channel where civilians train. And the expression is dip into the fire. And the metaphor is how are swords made? Swords are dipped into fire to become stronger and then they're hammered outside of the fire. And this is, to my understanding, an iterative process. And so when I think about this in the civilian world, for me, the lesson is dip into the freaking fire, right? Like strength comes from discomfort. Strength comes from experiencing classes alone. And of course, you know, there's a lot of joy in sharing experiences with others, which I think adds so much. But dip into the fire alone and come out and get hammered and do it again. And maybe the more you dip into the fire, the less you feel, right, the brunt of that. And maybe when you are hammered, you, you feel like you know how to get through that because you've been through it before. And the only way to learn how to get through something, I think, is to get through it. Like, that's how you become educated <laughs> and gain that experience. I, I, I wouldn't know how to go through grief if I've never gone through grief. I totally agree with you. Kyle, you need to run for office so that I can vote for you. Like, <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> Only if you'll be my vice president, because we make a pretty killer team. Okay, that's that's happening. Um, where can people find you on online? Do you have things you want to promote? Are you on Instagram? Do you have a website? Yes, um, there are three ways that people can reach out. My Instagram account is prof like professor p-r-o-f two underscores and my last name sharma s-h-a-r-m-a i also have a website the website is power.faculty.unlv.edu power.faculty.unlv.edu and of course folks are welcome to email me my email address is my first name dot last name at unlv.edu so p-a-y-a-l dot s-h-a-r-m-a at unlv.edu i love it thank you so much for sharing your tremendous knowledge and diverse life experiences with us today i uh i just i've loved this conversation and i'm so impressed by you and um the fire that you have for personal development and discipline and, and curiosity in terms of how to live your life, I think is really impressive. So thank you again, Payal Sharma. Dr. Sharma, should I call you? <laughs> um, I'm actually not that formal, so you're good. And okay. thank you so much for this space. I, I heal and I grow through these conversations. So thank you for helping me. Yeah. And please do give your dog a cuddle for all of us. Oh, I will to Chai Bear. He's my my soul bear and my loyal companion. And my other one, his name is Sammy, is short for Samosa, and he's scratching at the door because it's dinner time. <laughs> so you have a Chai and a Samosa. <laughs> I do. And the joke is I should get a third one and name it Chutney, but that will never happen because <laughs> two dogs is enough. Chai is a Korean jindoge, which is a smaller version of an Akita. And then Samantha, as I call him, is confuses everybody. They're like, is your dog a girl? I'm like, no, but I call him Samantha. Um, he's a little Japanese Shiba Inu. He looks like a fox. Chai wow. looks like a wolf. And they have fire and light me up every day. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. And, uh, and yeah, enjoy the rest of your day.
Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Take care. Isn't she so great? So many ideas, so many experiences. I feel like everything I said, she then replies, oh, you've reminded me of some very interesting and entertaining story or quip or anecdote. I really enjoyed that episode. Dr. Payal Sharma, what a gem. And you can find her on Instagram. She has a website. And as she mentioned, for the very first time, I mean, that's never happened that somebody gave their email address out. So if you want to just shoot her a message and ask a question or tell her she did a kick-ass job, you can go ahead and do that. Thank you very much for being here. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your energy and your support. The five-star reviews, I nudge you every week, but they do make a difference. The sharing on Instagram, I love seeing it. It does make a difference. And thank you, truly. Uh, I'm grateful for your support. Keep kicking ass, and as Payel suggested, why not just write something down that tomorrow you're going to do differently? What's a choice that you can make towards living a more empowered existence? And Have fun with that, because life is fun. Till next time, keep smiling.